Still, and thanks for the kind words. I, I don't really know what I do. I, I I got a job and I show up and I and I read a bunch of books and, and they said you can you can teach here. So, um, but thanks. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I'm also glad you invited me in on an easy subject. That's right. <laughs> um, I, this is a tough one. This is a tough one to think about. Um, but uh, I'll give it. I'll give it a shot. The two the two goes I have here with it. Um, I I want to. I'm glad we prayed for biblical illumination because it's it's easy to get out on a on a speculative limb with an idea like forgiveness, and it's easy also to uh, personalize it to. Um, uh, yeah, is that? <laughs> okay. Uh, it, it's easy to, to, when we start thinking about forgiveness, I think we can, we can go two different directions. We can immediately go to sort of our own existential moment with it, who we need to forgive and, and who needs to forgive us, perhaps. And, and then the other way to, to go with it is uh, to start thinking about uh, forgiveness as sort of um, being good. It's what good people do. It's, it's the right thing to do. Nothing wrong with either one, but I'm wondering if there's more to push with, uh, to, to push the topic with. And that's what I, I want to try to do today a little bit, is to think about it in a, in a bigger context. And specifically, I'd like to frame the concept of forgiveness in relationship to another important concept, and that's justice. I, I'm pretty convinced you cannot understand the idea of forgiveness without talking about the idea of justice. So that, that's where I want to go with it, uh, with the remainder of our time. The, uh, anybody read Ian McEwen? Or you know I'm talking about Ian McEwen? Uh, he's a, he not, not McKellen, McClellan, he's the wizard. This is the, this is the writer, okay? um, not, not Gandalf. Uh, any of you see a movie recent, in the last few years called Atonement? There's a movie called Atonement. Uh, that movie was originally a book by Ian McEwan that came out in 2001. And it's interesting. Uh, I thought about that book in light of the idea of forgiveness and justice. And I thought about the, the strangeness of that story in, in light of the topic. If you haven't read the book or seen the movie, just indulge me for a minute, and I'll set it up. And I think you'll see why I'm setting it up this this way. It involves a, it's told episodically in three sections from three different perspectives. Well, it's the same perspective three different at three different time periods, and it it involves a, a little precocious girl. The first episode does. A, pre a precocious little English girl. They're in the countryside in a state home, not not unlike Downton Abbey. It's that setting, uh, sort of the country aristocracy, genteel class. And this little precocious girl named Brienne, or Briani, it wants to be a writer. And uh, she, uh, she, she's very um, indulgent in her craft and, and thinks a lot of her ability and her perception and her, her desire to be a writer. But what, what happens on this estate is a series of events where her perception of what's happening isn't what's really happening. And it gets her into a great deal of trouble. Not really. It gets somebody else into a great deal of trouble because of her. 
she, uh, her older sister is Cecilia. I'm not going to go into all the details, but Cecilia is uh, in a relationship with Robbie, who they grew up together on this estate. Robbie was part of the, the grounds uh, crew on this, the estate. Robbie showed academic potential, and they went to Cambridge together. Cecilia and Robbie did. Well, they're all back together one summer night, the family, and there's a host of other complicated subplots with it. But the gist of it is uh, uh, Bryony witnesses Robbie and Cecilia, early 20-somethings, you know, involved uh, relationally, let's say. And... Um, a 13-year-old girl who witnesses this, a 13-year-old anybody who witnesses this, doesn't quite have the categories of what's happening. Plus, this is her older sister. Plus, she's very precocious and a little bit full of herself. Uh, this is complicated even further when Robbie wants to send a letter to Cecilia, and he has two versions of this, one of which is kind of the passionate language you might not want anybody to see. The other is the more, the kinder version, the, the more gentle version. He gives the wrong one to Bryony. She takes it and she reads it. This leads to a series of misperceptions and confusions where um, at another point in the, in, the, in the early plot of the story, there is a, um, another event where uh, one of the women involved is, is involved relationally and um, and, and the question becomes, who did this? Because it's an assault. It's viewed as an assault or, or a rape. And Bryony says, I know who did it. And of course, who, do you, who does she accuse? She accuses Robbie. So I, I hope that made sense if you haven't read it or seen it. But the gist of it is Robbie, who is involved with Cecilia and has affection, they have affection for each other, is falsely accused by Bryony. The story goes on. It, it, it takes us through World War, the beginning of World War II, the Battle of Dunkirk. Uh, Robbie actually goes to prison. He's allowed out of prison to go serve in the army. And the second episode in the story follows the past of Cecilia, Bryony, and Robbie as they grow older in World War II. The really hook, though, the hook for, for where we are with this question of forgiveness comes at the end. Because at the end of the story, Bryony is an old woman. And the setting, I believe, is the 1980s. And she has become a successful author. And we find out she's dying. She's also being interviewed about her story that she's written called Atonement. Amy is a good author. <laughs> He's clever the way he does this, right? In the course of telling her story, he, you get this beautiful picture of how Robbie and Cecilia are, are reconciled with Bryony, sort of. Uh, in the story, Bryony uh, goes and visits Cecilia after years of estrangement. Uh, Robbie is there. They have words. It's heated. It's awful. Uh, Bryony asks for forgiveness. She repents to them. Uh, they give her a half-hearted sort of go away, tell the truth to the police now, and go away. And at the last scene is she, the, the young 18, 19-year-old Brian is looking up, and they're in a passionate embrace in the window as she walks off. That's the story. 
Bryony, the old woman, the older woman in her 80s, tells the interviewer that that's not what really happened. And this is a stunning revelation, right? Because this is a famous book. He says, what? You mean Cecilia and Robbie were never reconciled? She, she said, no, they weren't. And uh, there's, they don't quite know what to do with this. And he said, well, why did you write it that way? What, what was the point? And she said, I, uh, I, had, I had to make amends. I had to make, I had to make it right. I had a chance to make it right, and I wanted them to be together. The truth be told, uh, Robbie was killed at Dunkirk, and Cecilia died in an explosion in the tube in the underground in London. She was a, a nurse, and she was uh, it flooded, and she drowned. They never saw each other again. Uh, Bryony never reconciled with him. The truth was never told, and. 50 plus years later, this woman is trying to make it right. And I thought about this. And I thought about how, why is that so gripping? And, and the reason I think it, it is so gripping is because it's at the heart of this question of forgiveness. Atonement is the title of the book. That forgiveness, we often think of forgiveness in terms of the transgression against us. And, and I think rightly so. Somebody's wronged us and we can think from our childhood forward. We, you know, I have a litany. I have a list of things I could bring out and say, well, this is fifth grade, what happened? <laughs> you know, and, that's, and, and I'm sure in my weaker moments I, I do that right up into, you know, it, you know, my wife just won't get it together. I need, you know, that kind of thing, you know. I'm sure you're all perfectly together. But we, we have this sense of, you know, I'm, I, I'm being wronged. But there's something else going on in the human condition where we've wronged other people where we're carrying secrets and we're carrying the baggage of memories of things we've done and said and we've left undone and unsaid. And this story from McEwen just brings this out so powerfully with the older woman who wants forgiveness but cannot ask for it anymore. Um, it, it's not possible to reconcile. It's not possible to make it right. So all she can do is create is rewrite the narrative. And so much of our lives are spent rewriting our narrative. We Americans are good at this. We, we, you know, the Gadsby's of the we, we can We can have the light at the end of the pier, even if we come from, oh, I don't know, lower Alabama or something, you know, where I'm, most of my kin are from, so don't, you know, you get my point, right? Is we can constantly rewrite that, that, that narrative and be somebody else. And our idea of forgiveness, I think, is often tied to this reconstruction of ourselves. This, this idea that not only have we been wronged, but we have wronged others, and we have to retell the story. Why is this? We have wronged, we have wronged others. Forgiveness then becomes a little more complicated. It doesn't just become that existential moment where somebody has to say they're sorry to us in order for me to have a relationship with them. It becomes a lifetime. It becomes a, a whole life of, I should never have said that. I should never have done that. And I do it again. And I find myself constantly reverting back to a kind of nature that I don't like in myself, where not only do I want forgiveness, but I want to retell my story over and over again. We want our past to be understood. We want to make 
sense of it. We want to be the author at the end of it all and to say, that's how it was made right with my parents. That's how it was made right with my siblings, my friends, um, my, my, my colleagues at work, um, strangers. And why do we do this? And I, I, this is where I would tie it into this overall encompassing sense of justice. We have, I think, a God-given sense of justice. And to, to make my point, I would, I would turn us to Romans. I'll give the lag here as I, I look this up. Romans 1, 18 through uh, 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what be, may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. I would take us to Romans 8 next, 19 through 22, before I comment. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. What is Paul doing here with these important statements in the book of Romans? He's telling us that by nature we understand something of our createdness. And the longing of that createdness is for something more than is immediately obvious in the world around us. Something's not right. The creation groans. And I think it's that groaning of creation is where we find this question of justice most pointedly. This, this need for something to be made right. This, this sort of aching that it's not just relationally that things are messed up, but some days everything's messed up. And at the heart of that is a question of justice. Why is it that things seem so out of whack? In, in the world around us. Um, even when they seem to be going well, it doesn't take much between the news and the internet and maybe dealing with family that things aren't so well, even if I'm having a good day. Somebody's been done wrong somewhere. To, to make the point, I think that Paul's trying to make, because remember, he was trained in this Greek world the idea of justice is not inherently revealed by Christianity. It's illuminated and expanded and maybe I think finds its perfected point in Christianity. But in the created world itself, in the pagan world, there's a notion of justice. I'm going somewhere with this. Maybe. Uh, there, there's a notion of justice. Let me give you some examples. Um, and let me just go ahead and arrange the furniture the way I think it is for us to sit in. It's not simply that there's a notion of justice in the non-Christian mind. Equally, 
the notion of forgiveness is not present in the same way. It's not there in the same way that Christian thought in Scripture directs us to think about it. Plato. Plato not, the, not the toy that we squeeze, right? But Plato, right? The Greek philosopher. Um, writes a great deal about justice. And indeed, in the Republic, justice is the highest virtue. Why? Because it is the political virtue that orders all of life. The highest good to which humans could strive in the pantheon of the virtues is justice, according to the great mind of Plato in, in, in the Republic. Aristotle tells us something similarly in his work on the ethics, in his, the Nicomachean Ethics. He says similarly, justice is the highest virtue for which we can strive, and the way we strive for it is through mo uh, learning to moderate between extremes of, of lack of justice or overindulgence and unfairness uh, to, to find a medium between these things that we that we strive for, and therefore it's a type of virtue that we can cultivate through reason, training, um, discipline, that we can learn to be communities of people that strive for justice. And in the ancient world, this is all the way through uh, the Romans, Cicero and Seneca. Uh, these are the highest attainment that, that the human uh, condition can achieve. It's one thing to be in control of your appetites, which was another ideal. We can control our passions, right, the Stoics. But to achieve justice is to truly attain to wisdom. Okay? Now, here's what's interesting about that. These are not Christian thinkers. And yet they've attached the idea of justice to the political goods of the communities we live in. We want to live in a world where justice is real to us, where we can trust it. If we don't live in a world where we can trust justice, what can we trust, right? Well, the problem is, or, or the, it's not necessarily a problem, but I think this is where it's so important for us to fall back on God's revelation and to understand what Christianity does with this, is that Christianity does not treat justice as the highest virtue to which we can strive for. And yet, it has a profound sense of what justice is. But justice, for the Christian mind, is tied to the natural creation that God made us in, but it's also connected to the possibility of forgiveness. Justice, in the Christian mind, is never dissociated from the possibility of forgiveness. And indeed, the concepts often run parallel through the scripture. Forgiveness for the pagan world, for the, for the non-Christian mind, is never identified as a specific virtue. Um, it, it, you know what? I, I, did, I did some homework. I said, I, I got to look this up. You know, if I'm going to chase this idea, I better find. But I looked up in, in Aristotle, for instance, or, and even Plato, in the Greek world. This, is, this would have been their schoolmasters for centuries, right? Where is, it, where is the idea of forgiveness found? It's good temper. It's a good disposition. It's, 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 it's learning moderation and temperament. That's what forgiveness is. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of habit of, I'm not going to let you get to me. 
No matter what you do to me, you can't get to me because I'm in control of myself. That's not what Scripture reveals forgiveness to be. It changes our notion of justice and forgiveness. And it takes us from this communal political sphere and it puts us in this uh, uh, vertical relationship to a God who's outside of politics, a, guys who, who, a God who is outside of all of our human relationships. So the ideas of justice and forgiveness have to be reoriented away from what law can do. That's where we find justice. It's law. It's the law of the state. That's what we rely upon. Rightly so. I mean, we, that's fine. But Christianity also directs us away from common law or regulatory law and pushes us into the idea of redemptive justice. It forces us outside of those categories into this relational category with God. I can pause here if I need to, or I can keep slamming it. Okay. Or yeah. 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 There's an exchange. Yes. Chin up. <laughs> That's right. Questions or comments? Uh, let me. To, to the point that I think where we're pushing this is that the simple bullet points I want you to understand is that forgiveness and justice cannot be separated in the biblical world. It cannot be separated. Okay, and it, it's a con. In in some ways, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I know uh, I think I'm comfortable doing it by saying that justice. When I say it's natural, I mean it's by virtue of our created order, about God's created order, that we have a sense of right and wrong, Romans 1 and Romans 8. Now, of course, another concept that has to enter in here is sin. Sin distorts our understanding of right and wrong and our ability to achieve it. 
But that sense of justice that goes with it isn't mitigated. We still want it to be right. We long, the creation groans. We groan for justice. We're, we, we have empathy when we see people being victimized. Forgiveness, though, can't be separated from the biblical idea, whereas there is no concept equivalent in the Hellenistic world to attach forgiveness to apart from chin up, deal with it, be a man, don't let them get to you, you know, ignore her, right? So what happens here? A lot of scripture, and I'm I'm conscientious of our time, and, and if you don't, I'm going to identify what I believe is going on and and give you some scripture. Justice is identified in this Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, with the character of God. It's not simply a virtue of a political end that we're trying to achieve. It is actually identified with the character of God and specifically with the righteousness of God. maybe more pointedly, righteousness and judgment of God. And some passages in Scripture I would, I would point us to. Job 37, 22. Um, talks, the passages I'm about to tell you, each of these passages relate righteousness and justice together. Justice, and I'll, I'll, read, I'll read a couple of them um, because it's worth it. Job 37, 22. Um, 23, I'm sorry, 23. The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power in his justice and great righteousness. He does not oppress. Justice, righteousness, justice, righteousness. Uh, Psalm 9, 8. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the peoples with justice. Righteousness, justice, righteousness, justice. Uh, Psalm 33:5. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of His unfailing love. Okay, it, maybe I've said enough. You can trust me now. Uh, Psalm 36:6, uh, 102:6. Isaiah, Isaiah 28. Isaiah 51, again, these are classic sort of biblical passages, if I can use that word, that we can appeal to where we see righteousness and justice associated with the character of God. And this is different. This is different from the notion that justice is simply something we want because we think it's good for everybody and it's fair. It's not justice as fairness. It's justice as something else. It's justice as a divine quality which reorients us from the horizontal back to the vertical. The Jews are good at this. All right. Forgiveness in the Old Testament is almost always... It, not, 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 yeah, forgiveness is always associated with sin and transgression. Forgiveness in the Old Testament is always associated with transgression, violation. Okay, It's not simply good temper or gentle disposition, or stoic resolve to not let you get to me. And by the way, we do this all the time. Children are the great exposers of how weak we are in our theology, because it's like if somebody in, in an athletic event with your kid or at school is, 
is masculine. What do you tell the kid? Turn the other cheek. You know, if what do whatever you have to do to make peace. No, you tell the ignore this. That's what we tell our children. Ignore it. Walk away. Be the bigger man. Right? Punch him. I mean, we 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 come up with all kinds of things. We we can think of to say. You know, you finally get to the end. But rarely do we go to. Let me tell you about the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, and even if we do, somewhere deep inside, I think we're harboring, I still want you to punch him, you know. Um, we, we do it all the time, and we do it with ourselves at work. We do it in our relationships in the community. I've got to go hear her one more time. I don't want to hear her. Oh, hey. You know, and then you put, you put on a good face. You put on a good face. That's the Greek Hellenistic Roman notion. It's specifically, when you read the Bible, it begins to undo us because it won't allow that, because it forces us into this relationship of righteousness and sin and transgression. Exodus 32, 32, for example, says, once you read Exodus and once you read Leviticus, you can never think of forgiveness again in terms of chin up, be the better woman, be the better man, right? Um, 32, 32. Yeah, whoever has sinned against me, the Lord is speaking to Moses, whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go to the people, the place of my angel, go before you. And uh, however, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. The idea of the blotting out of the book, the, 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 Greek, the Hebrew word can translate into forgiveness. I will forgive their sins. I will, I will mark it out of the book. But again, transgression and sin are associated with uh, the narrative of the Exodus from, e- from Egypt. Joshua 24:19. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. Okay. Um, He will not forgive you. Forgiveness is associated with idolatry. Committing the act of violating the righteousness of God. You see, that's the point. In 2 Chronicles 6 is another passage. I would I would turn us to um, 6, 38 and 39. Um, sorry. So uh, this is after the restoration of the temple. This is the rebuilding of the temple, uh, the second temple. Um, And we have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they were taken and prayed toward the land you gave their fathers, toward the city you have chosen and toward the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven your dwelling place, uh, hear their prayer and their pleas and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgiveness, sin, transgression. So the idea of the transgression here is moved from a legal notion in the Hellenistic Greek-Roman sense of the, of, of the word, where I need the transgression, for instance, that's settled in a court of law is settled for the sake of peace in the community. It's settled to be restorative 
toward the community. What, what the God of the Old Testament, what Yahweh is saying is the rest- restoration is with me. The restoration is with cre- the creator himself. Forgiveness is not simply bringing the community into stability and peace, but it's bringing you into a completion in your relationship with me. And of course, and I don't, you know, the, the, the million-dollar Sunday school answer, Jesus, right? Righteousness, judgment, justice come to the culmination in the New Testament. So forgiveness takes upon a historical, theological dimension that we've never had prior to Christ where forgiveness is actually made possible with justice. It, it complements and completes justice. But it's not natural. It is supranatural. It is, a, it is beyond the power of humans to bring this kind of justice and forgiveness to bear. It can only be made through sacrifice. And, of course, forgiveness in the Old Testament uh, anticipates this with the blood sacrifices of Levitical codes. But here, of course, in the New Testament, we find the culmination of this with the sacrifice of God. The only way justice can be oriented toward its proper end and go beyond merely political or legal ends is divine forgiveness. It's it's the only way justice finds its true meaning and its true home is in heaven. And the only way it can be it can at the same time be punitive and restorative is the cross. It's the only way that it can hold those two paradoxes together at the same time is on, is on the cross and in the resurrection. It's the only way that forgiveness and justice can be held together. It's the only way you, you don't have to live with the burden of having to rewrite your own narrative because the narrative has been written. You don't have to live at 80 and look back and say, I want to make it right now. We are capable of seeking and desiring justice by virtue of our creation, by virtue of our natural, God-given hardwiring. Romans 8, Romans 1. But we can only aspire to forgiveness. We can only aspire to forgiveness through Christ true forgiveness. It can only be a vertical relationship. I'll I'll close with a reference to St. Augustine who had to wrestle through the collapse of the Roman Empire uh, in in the city of God. It took him 14 years to write it. What is he? He he really tackles this problem of justice and forgiveness in the city of God because he, he wants to let the Romans know, even though you're blaming us Christians for the collapse of your empire, it's not true. You never were a just society to begin with. What is he doing? He's saying you never were virtuous. You were deceived. And then he goes through you know, a thousand pages of explaining why they weren't just. But then at the end, he says something important. Toward the end, he says, you know, but you know, we Christians can participate in the justice of this world because we know that it's but a shadow of the perfect justice to come. That's why we're okay with your law courts and your systems of justice. We're not seceding. We're not pulling out. We believe it's really from God, and it is of God. 
what you don't realize is that it is from God and of God, and it can only make sense in light of forgiveness. So I'll close there. There's a minute, maybe. I, I would. I'm I'm getting on Gil's turf here, but I would say it's therapeutic. I, I think we we look we we talk about forgiveness in a very Oprah kind of way. We talk about forgiveness as therapy, not as. Uh, uh, and, and I guess transformative can be collapsed into that, but it's it's still very much oriented on the, hori- the, the horizon of of the horizontal. You know, the how can I make things stable for myself and tolerable, and that's. If I'm reading the Bible correctly, that's not right. It's not about making things tolerable. It's about a new creation. It's about a hori- the horizon is actually the eschaton. It is perfect justice that will be seen for eternity. And so forgiveness, then our, our worlds of forgiveness become reoriented toward this new horizon. That It's not simply to stabilize things here. It's actually to bow the knee to Christ which sounds easy, and I don't mean to make it sound that way. I really don't. Um, I get it. It's hard. Anything else? Okay. Well, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.